Like many people, our, our family took advantage of spring break a week ago. Our daughter is a junior and sorting out her college options. And our parents live in New Jersey and Massachusetts. So we, so we packed up our minivan with suitcases and water bottles and Snickers bars. And, and we headed towards Ohio and then Pennsylvania and out east. One of the highlights of our trip was a morning spent at MoMA, the Metropolitan Museum of Modern Art in New York City, and an exhibition of the painter Juan Miro. Miro has been a favorite of mine, and he sits in this pocket between Picasso and modern artists like Jackson Pollock or Mark Rothko. He's considered one of the most significant painters of the 20th century and once created a tapestry for the the World Trade Center that was lost during the September 11th attacks. And our family wandered through this remarkable exhibit, and I came across a painting that you will find on the bottom of your bulletin cover. It's called Dutch Interior One. It's at the bottom there. Now, if you know anyone who is Dutch, then you can likely join with me in saying that room really doesn't look like the interior of any Dutch home that I know. So what exactly inspired Miro to call this painting Dutch Interior One? What inspired him to create this whimsical and engaging work of art that has inspired and captivated uh, museum goers for decades? On March 6th, we began a season called Lent, an old English word that means more or less spring. Over the past few weeks, we have been steadily processing towards Jerusalem and what Christians call Holy Week and what's traditionally designated today as Palm Sunday. This week, I realized I needed a refresher course on the origins of those two phrases and read, as one scholar reminds, that the earliest known record of any Holy Week observance, which includes the description of today, Palm Sunday, is found in the, in the travel diaries of a woman, a woman named Etheria. Etheria was a nun who documented her pilgrimage to the Holy Land back in the fourth century. Which is fascinating if you think about it. Can you imagine Etheria riding on, on a horse? and walking mile after mile, all in this desire to reach Jerusalem and to honor the one who died and left a tomb empty. No doubt she must have been fearless and driven. She was also clearly smart and took the time to write down what was unfolding in her own Lenten journey. And Etheria describes Palm Sunday in the 4th century like this. As the 11th hour approaches, the passage from the gospel is read. And the bishop rises and all the people with him and they go on foot from the top of Mount Olive, singing, blessed is he who cometh in the name of the Lord. And all the children in the neighborhood, even those who are too young to walk, are carried by their parents on their shoulders bearing branches, some of them palms and some of them olives. And thus the bishop leads them in the manner in which the Lord walked into Jerusalem.
And what passage was read before they descended from the Mount of Olives, we're not quite certain, but it's likely what Chris just read a moment ago from Matthew, that as they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you, and once you will find a donkey there and a colt with her, untie them and bring them to me, says Jesus. If anyone says to you, just say the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place, records Matthew, to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, see your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, and on a colt, the fowl of a donkey. Now it helps to have a little context to understand what Matthew is referencing here and what he's attempting to do. As you remember, for hundreds of years, Israel had been waiting for for a Messiah and for a Savior. We catch a glimpse of that longing in our passage from the book of Isaiah. In the Jewish scriptures, written hundreds of years before Jesus was born, it reads, Pass through. Pass through the gates. Say to daughter Zion, See, your Savior comes. What the author of the Gospel of Matthew is first trying to do is point to that passage that has resonated in the imaginations of the Israelites for hundreds of years. And he's connecting that text and its references to gates to what occurred in a gate outside of Jerusalem hundreds of years later. Now it's important to remember the author of Matthew likely lived a generation or so after the original disciples. He wrote down his account sometime after 70 AD. So what we're reading is not necessarily a news account written the day after it occurred, but it's more in the spirit of a historian who's connecting the past with the present. And while Matthew points back to Isaiah, he also does it with this subtle adaptation. He changes one word, and Isaiah reads Savior, but Matthew exchanges that for the word king. So where does that word king come from? Professor Tom Long notes how Matthew is drawing here from another passage in Zechariah, which reads, see your king is coming to you, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt. Matthew, in other words, is combining these two verses in our passage. Scholars also note that this verse from Zechariah mentions only one animal, a colt, which is a fowl of a donkey. But Matthew records how the disciples went to get a a donkey and a colt, two animals, which brings to mind this curious image of Jesus riding two animals through the gate into Jerusalem. And then as our passage continues, a very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road while others cut branches from the trees and and spread them on the road. Scholars suggest what Matthew's doing here is drawing from Leviticus in the verse that says, 
You are to take branches from palms and from willows and rejoice before God. Then the crowds went ahead of Jesus, shouting, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Those are words we know that echo Psalm 118. So what do we do with this? And how do we make sense of it? The fact in interpreting events that occurred long ago outside a gate in Jerusalem, Matthew is first drawing original hope of Israel of a Messiah. And then he's picking verses from here and from there and from here and weaving them into a tapestry of new understanding. Which brings us back to Miro and Dutch Interior One. In 1928, the year Miro began to work on the painting, it was, as one scholar noted, of a difficult time in his life. He had gained some notoriety, but he didn't want to repeat himself. So he went on a pilgrimage to Amsterdam and to the Rijksmuseum. There he wrote he was seduced by the ability of the Dutch painters. In particular, he was smitten by one painting, painted by Hendrik Martens Sorg. It was composed hundreds of years before he was born, a painting that depicted a lute player in a domestic scene in Holland. That's the painting on the left side of your bulletin. And you don't need to be an art historian to notice the two famous works of art share some basic images and forms. There is, for example, in Sorg's painting, a lute, and there's also a lute in Miro's work. There's a white tablecloth in both paintings. There's paintings on the walls in both works. And how did Miro journey, so to speak, from the painting on the left in your bulletin to the painting on the bottom? Well, he first fell in love with Sorg's painting, and then he bought a postcard, just as you and I might buy a postcard in a museum, and he pinned it on his easel, and he went to work. Now, I'd always thought that Moreau painted his expressive, colorful forms with that carefree swirl and flick of his hand. That inspiration just sort of bubbled up from inside of him. What I learned instead was actually anything but that. If you look at that black and white drawing next to Sorb's 17th century painting, if you look closely, you'll see this faint grid. The strategy Miro used to create his works of art was he would first be inspired by something like Sorg's painting, but then adapt and transform it through a grid system that retained the, the spirit of the original work, but then allowed him to bring his own unique perspective into a form of art. Which brings us back to Matthew's Gospel. And his rendering of what occurred outside Jerusalem now over 2,000 years ago. And this week, as I thought about Miro, and I thought about the author of the Gospel of Matthew, it occurred to me that they hold something in common as a painter and as a writer. 
that in many ways both of them use a grid system to guide the swirl of a paintbrush as well as the movement of pen over parchment. That while Moreau used a grid system to, to imagine this new work of art being inspired by Sorg's painting, composed hundreds of years ago, Matthew uses this theological grid, we might call it, being inspired from a work hundreds of years ago, the book of Isaiah. And he took the, the, the structure and the spirit of that passage, but then also brought himself to it taking a verse from Zechariah here, a concept from Leviticus over here, a phrase from the Psalms over here, and rendering a passage that has inspired Christians ever since. And so what do we make of this? I thought this week it reminds us that as we live our days and our lives, in many ways we often are creating our own grid through which we interpret the events that unfold in our lives. But what Matthew underscores and what our Palm Sunday passage reinforces is that early Christians lived their lives and, and interpret their lives through a biblical grid. As it related to past events, but also the, the moments and events that were unfolding before them right then. And in other words, they knew their scriptures. They remembered verses they had been taught. And that then they attempted to perceive and to understand their own life, as well as Jesus' life, through that lens of scripture. So as we begin Holy Week, I invite you to reflect on the grid through which you interpret your, your own life and your own work. And ask, am I drawing from Scripture as Matthew did? Remembering this verse, drawing inspiration from that verse, and locating my life within that biblical grid. For as we enter Jerusalem this morning, Matthew points us back to Isaiah's daughter of Zion and to Zechariah's king and colt and donkey. And as we wave palms to the spirit of Leviticus, inviting us to rejoice before God, and as we sing, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, we do so as the psalmist instructs. For in Matthew's mind, that is where inspiration and understanding resides. It is through the lens of Scripture that life makes sense and it comes into focus. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen.